Let's pray. God and Father, as we turn now to learn from your word, I pray that you would be speaking to us through it, that though we are sinners, you would be drawing us to believe in Jesus, that though I am a sinner, you would speak through me. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. When I used to work in the corporate business world, I remember one of the things that we would always have was a mission statement. If you've ever been in that kind of world, I guarantee that you've encountered a mission statement. And I have to admit, as just an employee in that world, I always kind of rolled my eyes at the mission statements and felt like they were kind of corny, full of jargon, wondered what the point was. But while that can all be true, having a mission statement is actually really important for a business. It tells you what you're there for and what you're supposed to be doing. And that might seem obvious, but oftentimes it isn't, and we can lose sight of it. A company can lose focus and get so distracted by side issues and different ideas that it loses sight of what it's there to do. In our passage this morning, we see the birth of John the Baptist. We see a miracle. Zechariah, who had been unable to speak, obeys the angel and names this baby John, and he has his voice restored to him. There's remarkable stuff happening. But it's not just that these are remarkable events. They are given an explanation. Zechariah offers this prophetic blessing over John and over Jesus, the coming Messiah. And the best way to think of this blessing, this benediction that Zechariah gives, is as a mission statement for God. This, he says, is what God is doing through John and Jesus. And if we are to understand what comes after this in the Gospel of John, we need to be on the same page about what's going on here. And we need this mission statement for God for the same reason that a company needs a mission statement. It tells us what we are here for as Christians, what we're supposed to be doing. Just like a business, it might seem obvious to us what we're supposed to be doing, but actually it sometimes isn't. And we can lose focus, and we can get so distracted by side issues and different ideas that we lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing as believers. And so this morning, we're going to focus in on Zechariah's blessing here, and we're going to see what it tells us about the mission of Jesus, and within that context about the mission of John the Baptist, and then within that context about our mission. So let's look at this together. Let's start with what Zechariah says about the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus. Even though our story is about the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah's prayer starts with the hope of Jesus the Messiah and what he is coming to do. And start working through the prayer. In verse 68, Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah's first words after being able to speak again after nine months of muteness is to praise God. Bless the Lord, he says. And in particular, he blesses, praises God for two things. Because God has visited them, God has drawn near to them, and God has redeemed them. That word redeemed means to buy back from slavery or to set free. And it is an image of God's deliverance and salvation that runs through the whole Bible. All the way back, its roots are in the book of Exodus, when Israel is released from slavery to Egypt. Israel has been in a place 
where for centuries they have been longing for a second exodus, for God to come and redeem them again. Israel at this point in history, which Zechariah is a part of, feels like they live in this kind of halfway place. They are in the promised land, and they're able to worship at the temple, but there is something lacking, this spiritual life and freedom and victory that God promises in the Old Testament. They're longing for that. And Zechariah is saying, this is the moment where it begins to come true. Keep reading in verse 69. It says, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old. What Israel was waiting for in this time was the Messiah, this promised king from the line of David who would come and bring God's promises to completion. And that is who Zechariah anticipates, this horn of salvation, which is a strange-sounding phrase to us, but the horn was an image of the strength of an animal. And so this is God's strong salvation that is coming from the house of David, as the prophet said. And the Messiah is coming, Zechariah says, but in fact, Zechariah is also announcing that he is here. If you pay attention when he talks about this Messiah here in these verses, it's all in the past tense. The Messiah has already arrived, even though his work isn't finished, even though most people don't even know of him. He is here, which is almost surely a reference by Zechariah to Jesus, who we just saw still in Mary's womb, had come and visited he and Elizabeth. So the Messiah is here. But what is he doing? What is his mission? What's the mission statement? Well, verse 71, it's that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That is the starting place of where Zechariah explains God's mission, that Jesus will save his people from their enemies. This is another idea Zechariah draws from the Old Testament. However, it is an idea that we can get confused about. People in Jesus' day got confused about it. So we need to ask, who are the enemies who Jesus is coming to deliver his people from? Who are the enemies? Now, this is a question where I want to be careful. Some of us might be like, I don't know. Some of us might actually know the answer I'm about to give. But most of us, even if we know the right answer, don't really have a good sense of why that is the case. So first, I will give you the answer. But then pay attention, even if you think you know it, because the why is really important. So first of all, if you lived in Jesus' day, you would probably have thought that these promises were about physical, political enemies, that they were about Rome. The Roman Empire controlled the Holy Land and had held God's people in bondage along with most of the rest of the ancient world. And many people in Jesus' day expected the Messiah to come as a sort of political revolutionary figure. And Jesus is not that kind of figure. Instead, in his ministry, he makes clear what the enemies are that he is coming to deliver his people from. And those enemies are our sin and God's judgment and Satan and the corruption of the world. Those are the enemies that are in view in the ministry of Jesus, spiritual enemies that he is coming to defeat. We can start to see that. If you look like at verse 72, how is God going to deliver Israel? He does it, it says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So God's deliverance from enemies is the same thing as his showing mercy to his people, which is an image of him 
forgiving them. And if that isn't clear enough, down in verse 77, we're explicitly told that this salvation that we're talking about is the forgiveness of our sins. So the enemies Jesus is coming to defeat are spiritual enemies, sin and God's judgment and Satan and the corruption of the world. That is important to know, but like I said, I think plenty of us can sort of know that or have a sense of that while still being confused. We need to appreciate why that is the case. When scripture talks about enemies, um, the first mistake you can make is to think in terms of personal enemies. It's like deliver me from the hand of Tony, that guy at work who is just so annoying. And that's obviously wrong. And although sometimes we can get confused about that, but, but even more than that, what the question that we need to ask is, what makes something an enemy of God's people? Well, answer, the enemies of God's people are those forces that enslave them and prevent them from serving God, that enslave them and prevent them from serving God. Like we said, all of this is rooted in the Exodus, ultimately. And there in the Exodus, well, obviously there is this physical, political power in Egypt. The problem in Egypt is that it is enslaving God's people and keeping them from serving him, which is why Moses' request from the beginning is to let us go out into the wilderness that we might serve the Lord. We can see that in this text, too. Why does Israel need to be delivered from her enemies? Verse 73 to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The reason we need deliverance is so that we might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness. It's not that we have these enemies that hurt us or annoy us or are bad for us. It is that we have enemies that keep us from being the people we were meant to be people made in God's image, living for God's glory. All right, are you following that so far? Whatever enslaves and prevents us from serving God, that is what scripture means by an enemy. But if that is true, then of course that has to include more than just physical, political enemies that are outside of us. Absolutely, they're a piece of it, and when Jesus returns, tyrants and evil powers will be toppled, but there are much deeper, bigger things that enslave us. Our sin enslaves us. The dark spiritual powers at work in the world enslave us. Our guilt and our rebellion and our corruption keep us from serving God far more than any physical enemy can. And the problem many people have with Jesus in his ministry is that they are willing to accept that they have political enemies and that they need deliverance from them. In fact, that's what they want Jesus to do. They're willing to accept that, but they are not willing to recognize these other enemies because those other enemies are much closer to home. They mean that we are our own enemies far more than anyone out there in the world is. That for Jesus to save us, we have to die to the enemy of ourselves the Pharisees and the other people who oppose Jesus, that is the thing they couldn't accept, that they were in their sin just as much an enemy of God as the Roman Empire. So that is Jesus's mission, to bring salvation and deliverance from our enemies, to set us free from everything that enslaves us and keeps us from serving God, which means more than anything else, 
bringing God's mercy and deliverance to our sins. I just want to pause for a minute and apply that to our lives before we move on and talk about the ministry of John. That is Jesus's mission. Too often as Christians, I think we worry about the wrong things. We give too much weight to relatively unimportant things and not enough weight to what matters the most. And in particular, a temptation for all of us is that we can focus on issues in the world or in society or in those people out there in a way that keeps us from focusing on issues in our hearts and our lives, which for our spiritual life is actually a lot more important. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that there are not issues out there in the world. There are. And like we said, God will ultimately bring judgment in that area. But there's this thing that often happens where we allow those issues to grow so big in our view that it blinds us to the much bigger issues in our hearts. I mean, I always think about, I remember I once knew a guy when I was younger who, um, who was this guy who was just really worried about religious liberty and how the next generation wasn't learning about Christianity. And he was super politically active and writing letters to the editor about how we needed prayer back in schools and churches needed rights and all of that stuff. And again, none of that is bad that he cared about that. But the reason he lodges so deeply in my mind is because as I got to know him, I recognized just how incredibly messed up his own life was. He drank too much. His marriage was falling apart. His kids hated him, and he certainly wasn't raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He showed almost no spiritual fruit, but he couldn't see any of that. He, he let his concerns about those enemies out there in the world blind him to the enemy living in his own house, the enemy that he looked at every morning in the mirror. And honestly, that was a much bigger enemy to his life with Jesus than anything out there that he was opposing. We always need to be careful of that danger. We need to apply scripture to ourselves much more deeply than to anyone else. Judgment always needs to begin in the household of the Lord. But that said, here again is the mission of Jesus. Jesus is coming as Israel's Messiah to redeem his people out of slavery. He's coming to defeat their true enemies, sin and God's judgment and Satan and the corruption of the world, and he's doing that by bringing God's mercy and salvation so that we might serve God in righteousness and holiness. That is Jesus's mission. Within that context, let's look at the mission of John. What is John the Baptist in particular then coming to do? We'll start in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So John is called to be God's prophet. That word prophet, that doesn't just mean someone with a lot of insight. Sometimes we can hear it that way. Just the other day, I heard a scientist who had published a paper in 2019 about the dangers of coronavirus is called a prophet on the radio. But that's not what Zechariah means. He means it in the Old Testament sense. A prophet is the authorized messenger of God. He speaks for God, revealing God's will to God's people. Israel had this line of prophets that started with Moses, that, that told them how to follow God, but the last of those prophets had died more than 400 years before all of this. And there had been this long prophetic silence since then. But now, Zechariah is saying, the silence is ending. 
And in particular, John's job as a prophet is to prepare the way for the Lord. That Jesus the Messiah is coming to work salvation, but before people can receive that salvation that Jesus is coming to work, John has to do his thing. What specifically did they need to be prepared for? Verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. What Israel needed was to have an understanding of God's salvation. And this is really important, so let me try to, let me try to explain it like this. There are two mistakes that we can make when we think about what it means to be a Christian. Two mistakes. One mistake is to confuse being a Christian with simply feeling bad about our sins. We, equ- we equate Christianity with a sense of guilt for sin. And some people relate to the faith that way, and that is wrong. Christianity is about receiving God's mercy and forgiveness. It is the message of God's love and the rescue that he worked for us. So that's a mistake. But the other mistake is to think we can become Christians without feeling bad about our sins. We want a positive message all about the love and welcome, and so we don't tell people the truth about sin. We pretend like it's not a big deal, and we're all great and no worries, and that is also wrong because without sin, the idea of salvation makes no sense. If we are not guilty sinners, then we do not need mercy and forgiveness. All we need is a pat on the back and Jesus to tell us that we're doing a good job. But here is how those two things fit together. Conviction of sin and guilt and all of that, it is not the good news of God's salvation, but it is the precondition to understanding it. The precondition, the thing that we have to experience first. God invites us into this house of love and warmth and righteousness, but the only way we will enter to the house is to go through the gateway of repentance and grief for the wrong things that we do. And that is what John's ministry is about. He is that gateway. He comes out swinging, proclaiming Israel's sin. Just listen, listen to his message, which we're going to look at in a few weeks from chapter 3. But here, here, here's John. He says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's some old school stuff, some hardcore stuff. And the thing we need to understand is that John comes with that message. He comes out swinging like that because that is preparing God's people to hear the message of Jesus. The only way they can understand what Jesus has to say is to first be convicted of their need for forgiveness by John. It goes back to what we said earlier about the mission of Jesus. Remember, Jesus came to save us from our enemies, chiefly the enemy of ourselves and our sin. And the only way we can be saved from ourselves is if we first recognize that we need to be saved from ourselves, if we realize that we are the enemy. And that is John's calling, to show us our sin so that we can arrive then at a place where we are ready to understand God's salvation. It is really important in all of this that we feel both sides of that again. On the one hand, the message that we are sinners is not the message of Christianity. 
It is not the point. Some Christians live almost like John the Baptist is the Messiah rather than Jesus. They beat themselves up over sin or beat other people up. And they think that simply by feeling guilty and making other people feel guilty, that that somehow will cause them to change. And that doesn't work, and that is not Christianity. But the message that we are sinners is essential if we are going to understand Christianity. We cannot accept the cure if we don't acknowledge that we have the disease. We cannot receive grace if we first don't recognize and grieve our guilt, which means that we need to not compromise the truth of our sin, but that we must always pair it with the good news of God's grace. There are certain medicines that you have to take together because if you take one of them on their own, it will actually hurt you instead of healing you. There are certain chemicals which on their own can kill you, but that when mixed with another chemical can save your life. And that is how it works with our guilt and God's forgiveness. They can only save us when we receive both of them at the same time. We need to make sure then that we are properly feeling both of those things. On the one hand, we need to take our sin seriously and grieve it. We are far worse than we appreciate. We do enormous damage to others and to God's world. And there's this attitude that too many Christians develop where they say, you know, I'm a sinner. And they say it like, well, nobody's perfect, but you know, God, God loves me. And so we're all good. And that is dangerous because sin is dangerous and destructive. And we need to appreciate and weep for that destructiveness. But on the other hand, we have to constantly apply the gospel to that guilt. We need to grieve it and then rejoice that we are forgiven, that in the breath that we confess, in the very next breath, we need to breathe in the mercy of God. And I think this is especially important for some of us. We need to make sure that we are communicating that to other people as well. Somehow the second part of that, the message of God's mercy and grace, too often gets lost in translation. And so people hear us telling them that they are sinners, but they don't hear us then telling them that God loves them and offers them salvation and forgiveness and welcome and pardon. And because they don't hear the second part of that, they're not able to really hear the first part either. So we need to make sure that we are constantly keeping those two things together, our sin and God's mercy. All right, so we have Jesus's mission. And then we have John's mission as it fits into it. And then last, let's close by talking a little bit about our mission. What is our mission coming out of all of this? First, something important to remember. While there are things that we learn from the mission of Jesus and the mission of John, our mission is somewhat different than both of theirs. It is different than Jesus's. Jesus came to die and rise again to work salvation for mankind, and we don't do that for people. It is also somewhat different than John, though. I think that there are some Christians who sort of fall in love with the image of John the Baptist, this fiery preacher out in the desert, and fail to appreciate that he has a specific task in terms of preparing people for Jesus, but that without Jesus, his task is incomplete. But that said, we have a mission that comes out of these missions. So what is that? Well, first, let's recognize that our mission is not to save people. That is God's job. Verse 78. Zechariah just talked about what John does, but then he goes back to talking about Jesus when he says why John does it. John is doing his work because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. 
So he says, the sun of God's love and presence is rising. The light is coming. And John is not that light, but it is because of the sunrise of Jesus' salvation that John does what he does. But then what is the result of that sunrise? Verse 79, it is to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Now that verse if you actually stop and meditate on it, provides you with a framework for the whole of the Christian life. It is about what Jesus has done. He is the light, the sunrise, but out of that, we get this image that actually helps us explain our mission as Christians. The image of light and darkness is a way of talking about our salvation, um, that, that these great enemies of sin and Satan, those are the darkness, and that Jesus is the light coming and shining into them. And if that is true, then that means three things for us. First, it means that we need to see the light for ourselves. That is always where we have to start. We need to behold the light of Christ, the gracious salvation he offers, both when we first believe and each day as believers. We have to look at the light ourselves. The mission of God centers on Jesus, not on us. He is the one who wins salvation. He is the one who defeats our enemies. He is the one who sets us free. And as we live as Christians, we have to keep looking to Jesus to do those things rather than starting to look at ourselves. So we need to see the light. And then out of that, we are called to share the light, to share the good news of Jesus with others. If this world is full of darkness, part of our calling as Christians is to take the light of Jesus and shine it into that darkness. Absolutely, part of that means shining it in a way that exposes the sin in the darkness, but mostly it means sharing the light itself, seeking to share Jesus and his love with people. Again, the mission of God centers on Jesus, so we need to be sharing him and talking about him and not getting distracted by these other things, but focusing on Jesus and what he does. And then out of that, we are also called to walk in the light. That's the final line, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Peace in scripture means the fullness of life as God designed it to be. It is not just not fighting with people, but it is love and flourishing and living in the world as it ought to be. And if the, if the problem is our enemies enslave us and keep us from serving God, then the whole point of this light shining is so that we might serve God, so that we might walk in it. Our obedience and mission center on and directly flow out of what Jesus has done as well. The more we see the light, the more we recognize the way that we should go. And that, that image, I think, of Jesus being the light, it actually solves one of the disconnects we often feel as people, which is the disconnect between God's grace and our obedience. So Jesus is the light, not us. We don't have to shine in order for God to save us. That's the grace part. But because Jesus is the light, the whole point of that light shining is so that we can see where we are supposed to go. There's no value in turning in a light bulb and then walking out of the room and closing the door. You turn on the light bulb so that you can see. And that is what it means for us to serve God. So boiled down to its simplest level, that is our mission as Christians, to see the light each day, to share the light, and to walk in it until at last the day fully breaks and the shadows are driven away. Here's the question I want to leave you with this morning. As we think about all of that, if that is God's mission statement, and that should be our mission statement, then have we really embraced that mission statement with our lives? 
Let me come back to that image of a mission statement in a business. Again, I know that some of us feel like it's corny, that it's just like slogans that you put up on posters, and mission statements can be that. But think about this. I, years ago, asked a friend, an older guy who is now a CEO, what the point of mission statements was. He agreed that oftentimes in the way they're used, they don't really have a point. But he told me this story about earlier in his career when they were developing a sort of mission and vision and value statement for his work. And they came up with a list of these things that include corporate stuff like one team, one purpose and care like crazy. And initially he looked at that list and was kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever. But here is what the leaders of that organization did. It's a hospital, by the way. Um, they took those ideas and they didn't just like put them up on a poster, but first they started intentionally, ruthlessly applying them to how they did things. So like in every activity of every employee at the hospital, they said, are we caring like crazy in this? Is this actually doing that? And if it wasn't, they changed it. Over a couple of decades, my friend told me, that deeply transformed the organization in really positive ways. People started to work and think and live differently because of the ways they had applied that to their lives. So much so that he told me that he realized that he was wrong about how silly it seemed when he went to a funeral of someone who had used to work there. And um, there on her tombstone, she had requested the inscription, she cared like crazy <laughs> as the final epithet over her life. We need to have that kind of attitude about our mission when we think about the mission of God in our lives. Christianity, just as much as any corporate statement, can become a slogan that you put on a poster and that you don't really do anything with. And that is tragic, but it doesn't have to be that way. The way it becomes something more is by intentionally, ruthlessly applying it to our lives. By saying, what if we really embraced this from the heart? What if we took each area of our life and examined it and said, are we doing this in this part of our life? Are we seeing and sharing and walking in the light? And if we aren't, we changed it. As we do that, as we start to take that mission of God and seek to really apply it in a way that shapes our lives, we will discover that we begin to change. We will actually discover freedom and the power to serve God, the welcome and embrace that he offers, and that we will rejoice in his forgiveness. So let's make that our calling, to take this mission of God and in each part of our lives seek to make it our mission as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the light, not us. You are the sun. We are at best moons that reflect your glory. Father, you are the light that is shining in the darkness and driving it back. And so I pray, first of all, Lord Jesus Christ, that you would shine, that you would drive back the shadows in our world, the, the shadows of division and hatred that plague so much of our culture, the shadows of disease and death that stalk us in this season, the shadows of loneliness and discouragement and despair. Father, I just pray that you would shine in the Lord Jesus Christ and drive those shadows back. More than that, I also pray that you would shine into our hearts, Lord. Our deepest enemies lie within us. And so I pray that you would be at work sanctifying us, convicting us of our sin and turning from it. 
drawing us more and more to walk in and trust in and serve you, Lord Jesus Christ, to walk more and more in the light. Thank you for the grace that you offer to us and draw us out of sin and into the life of your Son. Jesus, as you shine into us, I pray that we might also then reflect that light into the world. I do pray, Lord, that we might be faithful in proclaiming your gospel to those we meet, that we might be faithful in showing it in acts of love and mercy and compassion to those we meet. I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace and then teach us in that to show grace to others and to proclaim your grace to them, that through our mouths and our actions, this world might be changed and your kingdom might be built up. We pray this until you return and the light bursts forth in glorious day. Lord Jesus Christ, amen. And friends, now join me as we are led in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. 